1: I'm Caleb Zacharin, assistant editor at the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Dane, a Boston native and president of the law firm Dane Torpy, where he chairs the firm's real estate litigation practice. We're discussing his book, A History of Boston. Dan examines the several hundred year history of a city, highlighting along the way the watershed moments like the arrival of the Europeans, the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the technological revolution that all took place at least partially within the city's limits. As a New Yorker, even I must admit that Boston has an incredible story. Dan, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Gail, it's a great honor to be on. Thank you for having me. Of course, you know Boston is is a is a fascinating city. I, I don't know why, but when I, when I was a little kid, I I was always very fascinated by Boston. When I finally went, you know, I I, I was amazed by it. I think there, there's some there's something about the city. It has a, a sort of mystique that few other American cities have. Uh, I think it's because American cities don't seem to have the history that that maybe European cities or or, or city other cities do. Uh but Boston does have have something special about it. Uh but before jumping into talking about the city that you know you were born and raised in and, and live in today, is what if you could just tell us a little about yourself and your background.
0: Yeah, no great. Thank you for the introduction. Uh yeah, as you as you mentioned, born in Boston, lived in Brighton as a baby, grew up just outside the city in Newton, Massachusetts, uh lived in uh, Beacon Hill when I was a young professional, lived just outside outside the city in Needham for the last 23 years with my family now. Uh, but I've worked downtown since I started my professional career in 1996, so going on 28 years. Um, and I've just always been fascinated by cities. That's been my professional passion and interest. As you mentioned, I, I practice, uh, I'm a lawyer, I practice real representing clients who do real estate development. And, you know, it matches my sort of personal passion, which is understanding what makes cities successful. And I, I love to travel, You know, my family loves to travel. We travel as much as we can all around the world. Last summer we went to South Korea and Japan, it was really interesting visiting uh, cities like Seoul and Kusan and uh, Tokyo, uh, Osaka. Uh, and then I always love coming back to Boston and, and comparing what Boston does well or not do as well compared to other cities. Um, and so that was really a, a Passion of mine, and kind of led to uh, by my uh, project that I got into starting in in late 2017, which is just wanting to understand Boston better. And I started doing research on the city and taking notes. And I didn't actually intend to write a book, uh, but uh, after a couple years of of uh, research and note taking to understand Boston better, um, I started putting it together into a manuscript, and, and the book emerged.
1: Yeah, I should emphasize for for listeners, this is not a uh, a small book by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's it's nearly eight hundred pages, uh, not including the uh, the footnotes, the endnotes uh, at the end of the book, uh, and it's filled with photos. And it's it, it's it, you you really do cover seemingly everything in this book. Uh, you know, the first part of the book, you, you talk a little bit about the geography of Boston, uh, its natural features what it's what, what the city uh why this area would would turn into Boston so could, could you for, for people that have never been to Boston can you give a little bit of a uh paint a bit of a picture of what Boston is like uh in terms of its natural geography
0: yeah you know I guess a little bit more background about the book you mentioned it starts with the geography I guess I'll I'll mention why I thought it was important to start there um you know I I approached the book from my sort of professional passion of, of, of understanding principles of urbanism and what makes cities successful. Um, but I won, my research was really just a general history of Boston to look for patterns of what coincided with what made the city successful or not successful. And, you know, I really could have started in, in different places, but in, in understanding the city, I thought geography was very important as well. Um, so for instance, uh, the, the city is located, you know, it has a harbor, it's located on the ocean. Um, and, you know, without that, it wouldn't have become a, a, a maritime and mercantile power that it was, um, in, in the colonial era and the, in the first half of the 19th century. Um, it's fed by a number of, you know, the Charles river and the Merrimack river, north of the city, uh, not huge rivers and not, not the most powerful rivers, but the, the, um, the spread of the early, you know. Uh, mills in the early industrial revolution, of the first half of the 19th century, you know, depending on the fact that, that they were, were rivers for water power and, and they fed canals as well. Uh, you know, also interesting, Boston is, is reigned by a series of hills or drumlins, and these were glacial deposits. Uh, and so these hills were, were made of gravel as opposed to being, you know, bedrock. Uh, and that's important because the hills were then uh, knocked down to, to fill in you know, much of the, the harbor around Boston. Uh, So without the sort of the understanding of the geography of the hills being made from, you know, being built up of of glacial deposits, you wouldn't have been able to use the, the gravel to, to do the landfill. So, you know, I wanted to examine the, the, the geologic and geographic history of the area as well.
1: You also look at the first native settlers in the Boston region. So could you talk about, uh, these people who, who was there, uh, before European contact
0: yeah I and mean, I thought that it was important to to acknowledge that the area was settled before Europeans arrived um, in the Charlotte Peninsula being settled by the Puritans in, in 1630 um but also um because from a someone fascinated by you know urbanism and city planning the Native Americans lived in villages and you know lived communally and so they were sort of the region's first urbanists which I thought was really interesting. There's there's uh, archaeological evidence of of first peoples in the region going back sort of somewhere between nine and twelve thousand years ago. Um, uh, that era is called sort of the Paleo Indian era. Uh, slightly more recently, sort of two thousand to four thousand years ago, there's a, a Paleo Indian era, and there's evidence of of fishing in the in the back bay, you know, fish wares that have been found. Um, and then probably sort of more like to the last two thousand years, you get real settlements in the area, uh, and you know, leading up to to the more recent times, you have the the Massachusetts tribe in the, in the sort of the Boston area, the Wampanoags, um, southeastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, you have the Nipmucks and and uh, Nauset as well. So you have a number of tribes. They all belong to a language group called the Algonquian language group. It's not per se a tribe, but they share a, a sort of base language.
1: You know, many Americans and non-Americans alike are familiar with the first European settlements in Massachusetts. Uh, so, you know, for those who aren't, though, would you give a little bit of a background on who the Puritans were and why they ended up settling in Massachusetts? Yeah, so so
0: growing up, I was always confused. I didn't understand the difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Uh, and uh, as you sort of hint at, that there was the, the Pilgrims come first in 1620. Uh, and settle around Plymouth and southeastern Massachusetts, uh, and the Great Puritan Migration starts in 1630 um, and settles what what's then known as as Shaman or the Shabat Peninsula, which becomes Boston. Uh, they both uh, come out of a a movement in England of, of religious dissent, um, uh, sort of fed by Calvinist uh, beliefs from the continent, and um, the sense of wanting to purify the the um church of england which uh, these religious believers felt was um there were re- religious excesses that sort of one concept that uh henry viii uh uh you know separation from the catholic church was um uh cutting off the head of the church but leaving the body in place um and so these religious dissenters uh, who wanted to they say purify the church. We're not as Puritans, but there was a group of them that were so dogmatic that they wanted to separate entirely from the church of England and were known as separatists. Uh, and they end up leaving England to go, go to Leiden, uh, in, in Netherlands. Uh, but, uh, find it difficult to get work in the Netherlands and their children start becoming sort of Dutch. Um, and, uh, as a result, they start looking for a place where they can they can feel like they are still English, but separate, but practice a religion separate from the Church of England. And so, these separatists come in 1620 and end up settling uh, in in what we uh, know as Plymouth. Uh, the uh, they're not known as pilgrims really until the 19th century, but at the time they were called separatists. Uh, the Puritans are then sort of the main branch of the religious dissension movement who faced tremendous persecution in England uh, in the 1620s and end up, uh, 17 ships leave England in 1630, Uh, go originally to Salem, which there had been uh, some earlier settlements in Salem, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. Uh, John Winthrop's the first governor, comes to Salem, doesn't feel like it's a proper place for a large settlement, Uh, makes his way south along the coast and goes to, Charlestown, which already had a few uh, Puritan families who had come a little bit earlier. And they set up tents in Charlestown in 1630. Uh, and they're visited by this strange English hermit, the Reverend William Blackston, who had come much earlier, an earlier expedition in 1624 um, uh, in southeastern Massachusetts, but made his way north to the Shawmut uh, Peninsula and set up a house uh, in the Shawmut Peninsula. Uh, and he sees these Puritans come across the Charles River uh, in Charlestown, and he goes over and says, you know, there's not very good fresh water in Charlestown, but the Shaman Peninsula, where I have my little house, has some good fresh water springs. John Winthrop came over and said, we'll have our settlement here. I should mention, because we sort of jumped from the Native Americans to the the European settlers, Uh, in uh, about 1616, a... French expedition shipwrecks on the coast of Cape Cod and um, uh, the Nasset attacked the the uh, the, the French uh, explorers because there had been a fair amount of conflict between European uh, explorers at the time uh, particularly kidnapping Native Americans and bringing them back to Europe so the Nasset attacked this ship and uh, took four French prisoners who had some kind of disease with them uh, it's not entirely clear what the disease was. Um, uh, some believe it may have been hepatitis or yellow fever, possibly smallpox. Uh, but between 1616 and 1619, um, what's known as the, the great dying a disease wipes out upwards of about 75% of the native American population along the coast of Massachusetts. So, uh, the, the Massachusetts who lived in the Boston area, their, their population had been decimated. And so. Uh, when Blackston and, and Winthrop come to the Shaman Peninsula, they find it essentially empty of the, of the native peoples.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. And yeah, no, I, it's good to definitely add that context, I think, for explaining, you know, part of why that this area was settled. Um, you know, w- what would life have been like for these people in the in the early 17th century? Was it uh, particularly pleasant?
0: Uh, for the... The separatists who come in 1620, it's particularly difficult. They had, uh, you know, these were uh, very religious people who lived in towns in England and in Leiden. They were craftspeople. These were not farmers. These were not fishermen. These were not carpenters. Um, And so the first couple of years of the settlement in Plymouth have very, very high death rates. The Puritans come in much greater numbers and bring livestock with them. Um and so are able to get a foothold, comfortable foothold much quicker and start establishing um, you know, real physical structures, markets laid out, churches opened, uh, and pretty quickly sort of recreate
1: an English village in, in the New World. And, you know, what type of um, you know, economy were they creating at this point in time? Was it uh, you know, mostly kind of agrarian and and trading based or or where there's were there more interesting complex things that they were developing
0: it's really fascinating so early on it's you know it's a subsistence life for the for the early years particularly in, in Plymouth um but in in Boston as well and Boston gets named in 1630 um for the town that the influential Puritan minister John cotton is from in England um and actually doing my research I visited the mass historical Society and they knew that I was doing a, a book on Boston and they brought out John Winthrop, the original governor's original diary, and they showed me the first reference of the word Boston or the name Boston used to the area, which was really cool for me to see. Um, So early on, it's really a subsistence life of of farming and fishing to feed themselves. But both Plymouth and Boston, or the Puritan settlements, were set up as corporate endeavors with investors in England. Um, The Massachusetts Bay Colony the, the governing body is the Massachusetts Bay Company. It's set up as a corporation. John Winthrop, the first governor, is a corporate governor. He's not, a per se, a political governor, although the distinction really is blurred. There's not much of a difference between a political governor and a corporate governor. But these were set up as for-profit enterprises to provide returns for the investors in England. The investors in England gave money to these settlers to go to the New World to fish and to uh, you know, to trade with the native population for for furs and pelts, uh, and so the expectation was that that um, uh, raw materials, raw goods, were going to be sent back to, and fish were going to be sent back to England um, to provide a return for the investors. And there's a lot of tension between, you know, here you are, you don't have a lot of skills, you land in this new world, um, and you're just worried about housing yourself and feeding yourself, and you have investors back in England saying like, hey, where's my return this year? Uh, so it's a really sort of fascinating dynamic in the first certainly decade or so of settlement. Um, but as as more settlers come and as the population gets more established, and I talk about this a lot in the book, the the economy takes on a, a, a sort of triple basis, a tri, tripartite, I guess, um basis to the New England economy, which lasts all the way up until about the 1840s, which is based on um, uh, agrarianism, you know, farming, uh, which includes timber, uh, and uh, a maritime economy, which is fishing and whaling. And then the, the third aspect is is the mercantile economy, tra- a trade-based economy. And um you know New England has sort of few natural resources compared to other places. And it settled on a village model, not a large plantation model. And so it really was not sort of the extraction type economy that you could get in other colonial places. And so um, New England figures out that its it's advantage being on the water and very resourceful settlers who sort of figure out how to become shipbuilders was to be traders, to take products made in one place and trade them for products made in another place, particularly in the West Indies. The West, we sort of don't appreciate the economic powerhouse of the West Indies with the sugar plantations, um, you know, during the colonial period, and so those sugar, those islands, their economies were almost entirely um, based on supplying the the European demand for sugar, and so they were not growing other crops. There was a huge demand for horses to turn uh, to turn the mills, and so New England becomes a supplier of the of the needs of the West Indies. Unfortunately, those needs quickly become for human labor as well, and um, you know once you get further into the 17th century, the, these New England traders end up sort of coming up with this um, triangular trade where they're um, bringing molasses back from the West Indies, which are which is distilled into rum. The rum is then taken to the west coast of Africa and traded for kidnapped human beings, which are then brought to the West Indies and traded for,
1: for molasses again. Do you think, uh, you know, at least in the early days, you know, Boston becoming a more established city, it is it safe to say it was really dependent on slavery?
0: I don't know that I would say Boston becoming established city was dependent on slavery. I would say that trade was a major part of the economy uh, and, and the trade in human beings was a significant portion of that. Although the human trade, was run a little bit more out of Rhode Island in places like Bristol, um, but Boston is in, is a, a the financial capital of New England during the colonial period, and so for instance, whaling is an enormous part of the economy in, in uh, colonial times up in up until about the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, and whale the whaling ships by and large did not leave out of Boston, um, mostly out of Nantucket during the colonial period and into the nineteenth century with its, its deeper harbor, its New Bedford. Um, and yet the capital for these whaling expeditions, which were very capital intensive, comes out of Boston. And so, you know, writing a book about the history of Boston, you sort of have to make decisions about what counts as Boston history or not Boston history. And so, you know, you say, Well, whaling is not quite Boston history if it's run out of Nantucket and New Bedford. But to understand the economy of Boston where it's it's providing the capital for these endeavors, um, you know, you have you have to you know, you, you can't sort of separate them, I think. And so um, trade of of all kinds, but including human beings, um, is is a major part of the New
1: England economy and its finance out of Boston. So Boston becoming a more established city, you know, was it obvious, when was it sort of clear that that Boston would kind of be this hotbed of more revolutionary sentiment becoming, you know, obviously Boston and people from Boston so played such a critical pivotal role in the eventual American Revolution. Uh, was this something that had been germinating for a while there?
0: So it's a you know it's a question I try to explore. Like why is it that Boston of all places becomes sort of the the hotbed for revolutionary ideas that lead up to the American Revolution? And I think it's pretty clear without contribution of Boston, the American Revolution wouldn't have happened. When and how it happened, you know, probably at some point there there would have been a, a separation. From Great Britain. Um, but um, you know, Boston becomes a major contributor to the events leading up to the American Revolution. And it's really interesting to sort of wonder why. That you call it a city, which is, you know, which obviously we think of it as a city. Boston doesn't incorporate it as a city until 1822. Uh, and so it's it remains a town throughout this whole time period and quite small. The Shama Peninsula is, is tiny geographically. Boston today has been greatly expanded. Boston's still a small city geographically. Um uh but Boston that we know of today is sort of the product of landfill and annexations of surrounding towns. The historic Boston of the Shama Peninsula was this tiny peninsula connected to the mainland by what was called the Boston Neck, which connects to the then the town of Roxbury and, and today the neighborhood of Roxbury, or what you know, what would be the, the neighborhood of Roxbury. Um, and so you have this tiny town that is a financial center, uh, and becomes a center for for the printing press, uh, and um, uh, you know, and, and the you know the, the merchant ships out of Boston, and so there's this really interesting dynamic going on in Boston that it's a place of tremendous ideas um, through the press uh, and through people traveling around the world, the different people coming to Boston with different ideas. So it's sort of a hotbed of of um, intellectual curiosity in the 18th century. Um and then sort of a few sort of, you know, I don't think Boston was ordained to be the place of sort of revolutionary ideas, but a couple of different things happen. One is just the sheer brilliance of Samuel Adams as a uh as a propagandist. Um you know every move that Great Britain does, no matter what its intentions are, uh, Samuel Adams comes up a way of, comes up with a way of spinning it that that riles up the people of Boston. Um, and the merchants themselves sort of rebel against a lot of the acts that, that, you know, people have learned about in in American history classes, but just a, a little bit more, I guess, background to it. Um, there are a series of wars between the, the British, which, you know, included the colonists, you know, at the time the colonists considered themselves British. And I'll mention, I was talking about the English before in 1707, um, the United Kingdom is formed. And so England and Scotland and Wales um uh you know come together to form the United Kingdom. And so uh what were what were English before 1707 become become you know Great Britain British. Um and so British fight a series of wars with against the French and Native American populations, uh going back to far back as 1636 with the, with the war against the, the Pequots in, um, in Connecticut, uh, the the uh, the war with the highest casualties in American history is is King Philip's War in the 1670s. And there's a series of wars throughout this period, culminating in what's what's known in uh, North America as the French and Indian War um, in the uh, 1750s and into the 1760s. Uh, part of a much broader world war, uh, largely between the French and the English all around the world, um, including on the continent known as the seven years war, uh, but enormous debts are incurred fighting the British, fighting the French and the native Americans on the, on the North American continent. Um, at the end of that, the French are, um, you know, largely defeated. Um, but through the treaty, the, 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 um, uh, There's an agreement that the um, British settlement will go out to the Appalachian mountain range um, and that there'll be a sort of a Native American uh, land area on the far side of the Appalachians. And so the British set up um, forts in a system of, of separation between the Native American population to the west of the Appalachians and the British population to the east of the Appalachians, which is very, very expensive to maintain. And so the parliament's looking at these enormous expenses that have been incurred and huge debt that's incurred, uh, in North America, um, which they sort of, uh, the from parliament's perspective sort of for the defense of, of, uh, for North Americans, the colonists sort of view the, 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 those expenses a little differently and felt that they had heard the expenses as well and leads to a series of taxes and other acts that, you know, that, that get rebelled against. What I think is really fascinating is that um, often these acts end up reducing taxes. Um, but what they do is that they, uh, there's enormous amount of smuggling that's going on in the colonies, particularly out of Boston, the Boston merchants to avoid the taxes. And so the sort of what parliament sees as the compromises will reduce the tax, but we'll increase the enforcement against smuggling. And so these acts um, by, by, by cracking down on smuggling are a threat to the Boston merchants like John Hancock, who are making their money through, you know, illegal trade or trade that they're not, you know, they're not declaring and paying duties on. And so these merchants are the ones that are, you know, most riled up about these actions. And and so as Samuel Adams brilliant said, he's able to 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 translate what's essentially a trade war between merchants who are shipping legally and merchants who are shipping illegally. Um, into something that that the average person in Boston would would care about. So the Tea Party is a great example of this. We think about the Tea Party, no taxation without representation. Well, it's not really what the Tea Party was about. The merchants that were bringing in the tea from the East India Company um, to Boston on the the three ships that have become the subject of the Boston Tea Party, those were all Boston merchants that are bringing in the tea, um, and but they're opposed by other Boston merchants who are. Bringing in their own tea without paying duties, and so this is just a bit, just a dispute between lawful and unlawful, tea, you know, tea merchants, uh, and yet Samuel Adams is able to get the population to sort of, you know, create this great act of civil disobedience.
1: Yeah, that we we could uh we, we could spend the next hour talking about uh Boston the Boston Tea Party and the uh the, you know the the kind of the roots of the the American. Revolution, but yeah, you obviously talk a more about it in the book, so I encourage um, you know listeners to to check out the book for for more um, on that. But you know, just in the interest of time, I, I think jumping ahead a little bit, you know, would you talk a little bit about how Boston fared during the Revolutionary War? What what happened to it? So, with the loyalists in the city, in this occupied
0: city, surrounded by uh, militia and All around the Shawnee Peninsula. Um, And the winter of 1775, being particularly a cold winter, uh, there was a lack of food, starvation, um, uh, disease races through Boston. Uh, I believe there's an outbreak of smallpox. uh, To stay warm, Uh, the loyalists living in the city, as well as the garrisoned uh, British regulars, start uh, chopping houses, taking houses down to use as firewood um at the same time because of the british blockade trade um out of new england this you know around the boston area essentially stops and so the economy for the patriots in the countryside essentially stops and so the british are finally dislodged through this great act by uh, henry Knox, who's a bookseller in boston comes up with the idea after sort of jumping ahead i guess uh george washington becomes appointed um uh General to take over the creation of a Continental Army, Uh, Henry Knox's bookseller convinces George Washington to uh, send Henry Knox out to Fort Fort Ticonderoga, which had been captured um, not long before um, by Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. And Henry Knox takes, in the middle of winter, takes these cannons from Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York and on sleds, carries them across, um, you, you know, across the Hudson River, all the way across Massachusetts. They set up the cannons um, in Dorchester Heights and, and uh, the British end up evacuating Boston. So that's really the end of the Revolutionary War in Boston, but what's left behind is a devastated Chama Peninsula um, where houses, so many houses have been chopped down. There's disease, uh, lack of food, so the, co- the local economy around Boston is in complete shambles, uh, by the time sort of the war ends in, in the Boston area. And so it takes quite a bit of time to sort of to, 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 rebuild up, um, the British, which have always been the main trading partner, um, for trade out of Boston are, are slow to re-engage in trade, um, with Boston in particular. So it's, it's, it's a long period of rebuilding the local economy after the revolutionary war.
1: Yeah, when did so? You know this tripartite economy that you were you kind of re- referred to earlier. Uh, you know, was this was this basically what dominated for the half century? When did things start to uh, to change a little bit in the, the the development of the economy?
0: Yeah, so I talked about the bases of the bases of the economy in the colonial period, and they actually reached their zenith in the first half of the nineteenth century. Um, so you know, whaling ships out of New Bedford. Uh, are whaling across the Pacific and up to the Arctic. Um, uh, the um, uh, the trade reaches its its height with the opening of, of the market in China and Boston merchants and, and merchants out of Salem, Massachusetts are trading not just in China but in in India and Russia and Sweden, um, as far as Madagascar. I mean, there are Boston ships or ships out of Boston and Salem and they're trading all around the world. Uh, it really is a, a trade powerhouse as well as the farming economy uh, has access to greater learning on on sort of uh, farming efficiencies and you 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 know John Deere tractors for you know first start uh, you know, uh, rather plows start first coming out at this time. So there are efficiencies that are created. but there are signs of of instability in these these tripartite uh, markets. So for instance, the opening of the Ohio River Valley after the Revolutionary War, if you're a farmer in New England and you have a choice between, um, you know, cold winters and rocky soil um, or the fertile land of the Ohio River Valley, um, you're going to choose to go out to the Ohio River Valley. And so you had this incredible migration in the first decades of the 19th century of farmers from New England out to what was then called the Northwest Territories, um, you know around the Ohio River Valley. And so you have entire villages that that empty out within, you know, a year or two. I believe the population of Vermont in the first decades of the 19th century is is cut in half. Um, so great is the migration. Um, the number of farms across New England, you know, plummets at a at a very high rate. Um, you know, as well as other factors, you know, as we could get get to it's the period of this time of the sort of early rise of the mill economy and the industrial revolution, and and there's a great demand for labor. And so, um, young men and women in New England are going to taking factory jobs instead of working on farms. And as the population grows, there's a demand for, for land. And so farms are selling to developers. So you see the the farm economy essentially collapse in the first half of the 19th century. Um, oh, the whaling industry collapses when whales become too scarce. and the introduction of kerosene and, and oil. Um, and so, you know, whale, you know, fishing certainly remains, um, you know, an important part of the economy, but it becomes no longer sort of the backbone of the economy. And then the Boston loses its primacy as a center for trade to New York in the first half of the 19th century, particularly with the opening of the Erie Canal, where all these products from the middle of the country, um, are going out the Erie Canal and the down the Hudson into New York and New York has a deeper harbor. And so New York sort of passes Boston as a center of trade in the early 19th century and sort of, you know, ends up, you know, sort of lap, you know, lapping it. It gets such a big lead. Um, and this coincides with, with the rise of this manufacturing and industrial economy in the first half of the 19th century, particularly by the 1840s when sort of the three pillars of the
1: New England economy get, get replaced with this new industrial economy. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that um, that shift, you know, the, how the Industrial Revolution swept through Boston, uh, you know, what sort of industries came, uh, you know, what new, uh, inventions were, were beginning to, to, uh, caught, to change the economy.
0: Yeah. So the industrial revolution happens earlier in England than it does in, in North America. Uh, and so the, this, what sort of pegged as the start of the industrial revolution in America is an active industrial espionage, uh, by Francis Cabot Lowell. Uh, who had been sort of this math whiz who made a lot of money in the China trade in the the first decade of the 19th century. Um, But the China trade is unbelievably lucrative, and yet incredibly uh, risky, because these ships that would go to China would be gone for three or four years. um, And sometimes they would never return, they'd be lost at sea. Uh, And it was a, a tough lifestyle to go to go off on a ship for three or four years and uh, and hope you return. Uh, and so Fritz Lowell, having made money in the China trade, was sort of looking for something new. And he goes to England in 1810 um, because he wants to study the power looms in the, uh, you know, in, in north of, of London um, uh, in, in you know, in the English Midlands. Um, and, but these uh, uh, textile uh manufacturers in England knew that their um these power looms that they had uh you know were based on sort of innovations that were highly valuable to competitors. Uh and so they, they actually had they were they were petrified of people stealing their trade secrets. So you were allowed to visit these mill, these English mills, but you weren't allowed to take any notes, couldn't take anything with you. Francis Capal spent two years just looking at these mills and he, he draws no pictures, takes no notes. He gets searched multiple times, um, to make sure he's not taking anything or have any drawings. And he returns to Boston in 1812 and works with an engineer, um, uh, by the name of Moody, I think it was Paul Moody. Um, and, uh, the two of them sort of recreate these, these, uh, you know, these power looms, uh, and improve upon them. And they open, um, these textile mills in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, and it becomes incredibly profitable. France Cavalola ends up dying, but his associates, um, Patrick Jackson and Nathan Appleton, um, are looking for even greater water power than is supplied by the Charles River, uh, in Waltham, uh, and the Middlesex Canal system had, had, uh, had, you know, recently been open, reaching up into um, an area north of Boston, uh, on you know off of the Merrimack River, and so they found a new town that they named after Lowell, and opened mills in Lowell. And so for these uh, China traders in Boston who suddenly see an opportunity to make money, uh, investing in these new mill-based manufacturing uh, industries, uh, they they what a group of them become known as the Boston Associates. And instead of the incredible risky endeavor of financing ships to sail or or themselves going on ships, uh, you know, to China or India or Russia to trade, they take the profits that they've made, um, sort of form this syndicate of the Boston Associates and start investing in mills. uh, And the mills become incredibly profitable. And the early aspects of the Industrial Revolution is to take jobs that were done Uh, by hand, and you can come up with ways to replace uh, a lot of the uh, expensive sort of craftsperson. They still were labor intensive, but but they were much um, uh, sort of lower level of of labor needed, much less expensive labor needed. And so the the, uh, industrial innovations that are being made are essentially ways of making manufacturing more efficient. Uh, what's interesting is that as the industrial revolution continues, you sort of have this transition from innovation in the manufacturing process to innovation in the manufacturing product. So, for instance, you get uh, Alexander Graham Bell uh, essentially inventing the telephone in Boston, you know, much later in the in the nineteenth century. But this is very different from Francis Cabot Lowell's, you know, new mills. Um, or you know the first sewing machines that are that are, that are uh, you know invented in, in Massachusetts because the sewing machine isn't in itself the end product. it's just a, a more efficient way of creating a, a product that had already been made. But you have this transition to the creation of, of products that that had incredible demand but but before they were invented, no one ever knew that the, that there was such a need or demand out there. Um, and so you have this transition to to the invention of things like the telephone, which happened. You know, happen in Massachusetts.
1: So, yeah, we we've talked um, quite quite a bit about the you know the economic developments uh, during the you know the early to mid nineteenth century. Uh, Wasn't if you could also discuss you know the culture at the time, uh, you know, with with also a focus on the the racial and religious tensions in the city, you know, like the you know ev- eventual impact of the Civil War on Bostonians and conflicts between Protestants and Catholics.
0: So. um... That's pretty. That's pretty huge theme, and, I, and I'll, I'll uh, jump in and touch on on a couple points. Uh, I think probably the, the the two more interesting dynamics that you you were getting at are, are Catholic Protestant tension and then and then race relations, uh, and I'll I'll talk about both of them uh, for a little bit. But they they end up defining Boston really throughout the nineteenth century and twentieth century, um, and you know there are different terms tribalism, but Boston enters into it a period of sort of where we don't listen to each other and, and and we make decisions just based on, um, people that we know and we, and, and uh, that are like us. And, and it really ends up holding Boston back tremendously in the 20th century, but, um, Catholic Protestant tension. Um, so the Puritans, uh, escape, you know, leave England so they can, you know, practice religion. That they want to practice, but there's no shit of, of, uh, of the Puritans being, you know, leaving England for religious liberties is not quite accurate. You know, the Puritans were hanging Quakers on on uh, Boston Common in, in the 17th century. Um, and so not surprisingly, um, the, the practice of of Catholicism was was banned in colonial Boston. Um, I don't think Boston gets his first prelate until after the Revolutionary War, the first bishop in Boston's not until the early 19th century, uh, Bishop Chevreuse, Um, uh, but, um, you have some migration from France and from Ireland in the early 19th century. And so you have the first foothold of a, of a Catholic population in Boston in the early 19th century. Uh, and the response from the, uh, Protestant, you know, descendants of the Puritans is, is violent. Um, there's a convent, the Ursuline convent that opens in Charlestown although a part of Charlestown that's today part of um, Somerville uh, and uh a mob marches on the convent after it opens uh and they burn it down um uh the the uh the the fire firefighters you know respond from Charlestown uh and the cath- the the Catholics in the area observing this fire see the Fire, the Protestant firefighters actually contributing to the, the looting and the burning of the, of the Ursuline uh, convent. Um, a few years later on Broad Street uh, in Boston, uh, there's a, a group of of Catholic, Irish Catholics who are leaving a funeral and they run into a group of Protestant firefighters uh, leaving a fire uh, and they start exchanging insults and, and, you know, fist fights, which turn into, um, uh, you know, bricks and bats and everything and an enormous riot involving thousands of, of people, Catholic and, and Protestant riot called the Broad Street Riot in the 1830s. Um, and, um, the Catholic neighborhood there gets sort of, dis, you know, looted and destroyed in this, uh, in this riot. And so, um, you know, really sort of tough early relations between the Catholics and the Protestants. Uh, following the potato famine in, in Ireland in the uh, late 1840s uh, with a large, much larger Irish Catholic migration, the 1840s and 1850s to Boston, you know, over time, uh, the Irish Catholics gained political foothold uh, and gained political power uh, and end up sort of taking over city government, um, certainly by the time of, of John Fitzgerald, the, the grandfather of um, John F. Kennedy, uh, who becomes a mayor in the early 20th century, and, and um, the most famous of all Boston mayors, James Michael Curley, um, in the early 20th century as well. The Irish you know, gained tremendous political power in Boston while the, the Yankee Protestants uh, hold control at the state level. And so you really have continued decades of conflict between uh, Irish Catholics and Yankee Protestants throughout, you know, really till the 1950s when, when relations get much improved, uh, terms of race relations, uh, you know, similar dynamic in some ways, although Boston also has a a very proud record on on race relations in the 19th century, surprisingly, um, in colonial America, slavery was legal in every colony, including Massachusetts. Um, you know, as we talked about already, New England traders were trading in kidnapped human beings in the colonial period. Most of them were traded in the West Indies, um, but some of them, some of the ships continued back to New England when they brought molasses back and brought some uh, kidnapped human beings back to New England. Uh, the dynamic was a little different from slavery in the West Indies and um, the American South in that it was not a plantation based economy. Um, it's much more of sort of a craft and trade based economy. And so slaves tend to be, you know, middle, held by middle-class households of one or two slaves in a, in a family as well as, uh, the families would, would buy enslaved persons and then essentially lease them out to, to trades or, or lease them out to shipbuilding industries. Um, uh, but, um, when John Adams writes the first, uh, Constitution for for Massachusetts after the Revolutionary War, uh, he writes that, that all men are born uh, free and equal. And so the courts of Massachusetts interpret free and equal as meaning as incompatible with the concept of the institution of slavery. So 1783, Massachusetts becomes the first state to abolish slavery. Following that decision uh, in Massachusetts, the other uh, northern states in the New Republic um, Similarly, abolish slavery. So you have this divide that happens by the early nineteenth century between um the northern states without slaves and the southern states with slaves. But what replaces slavery in the north is a, a system of of a segregated society in all ways. What we think of of twentieth century Jim Crow laws all apply uh, in northern states. Um, what ends up changing the the dynamic is really starts with William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, which he founds in 1831 as a radical abolitionist newspaper. And he does two really important things: he hires women and he hires African Americans as writers and as um, lecturers in the abolition movement. But the women and the African American writers and lecturers, when while writing and, and lecturing about abolishing slavery in the American South starts saying, well, wait a second, what about civil rights here at home? Uh, and it gives rise really to the national women's rights movement starts in really at Boston in the 1840s, as well as the first American civil rights movement in the 1840s where Boston's black population, um, through acts of civil disobedience and boycotting and petitioning, um, Get the laws of of Massachusetts and Boston changed so that in um, 1843, rail cars in Massachusetts are desegregated. Um, uh, The law against interracial marriage in Massachusetts is repealed. Is repealed in uh, 1843. Uh, You have by uh, 1847, I believe, uh, Robert Morris becomes the first member of the the bar in Massachusetts, and the second African American become a member of a bar in the United States. uh, And uh, medical profession opens for the first time to African-Americans in the late 1840s. And then the big one, 1851, the general court, which is the legislative body in Massachusetts, um, uh, uh, ends segregation of schools in Massachusetts. And in the second half of the 19th century, schools in Massachusetts really are um, integrated. You see pictures from schools around Boston second half of the 19th century, and they're, they are integrated schools. The, po- the African-American population of, Bo- of Boston remains relatively small throughout the 19th century, but it, it is a relatively integrated society in the second half of the 19th century. That changes in the 20th century through a series of of unfortunate policies. Uh, and the segregated city that, that we see in the 20th century that leads to the horrible period of, of school busing and violence in the 1970s is really the product not of sort of Happenstance where people happen to live, but really is the product of intentional decision making made through political decisions as well as business decisions um, uh, that are really quite horrifying and and give Boston a very poor racial record in the twentieth century uh, that we've been, you know, fighting against and building against in the last sort of forty years or so, much more successfully.
1: Yeah, we'll certainly uh, pick back up on on that thread. I I wanted to uh, continue with something that, that you were that uh, you sort of hinted at before about the the kind of the political shifts in Boston uh you know the 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 rise of irish politicians uh which is very you know i think very crucial to the to the boston story uh so you know what were boston politi- politics like at the turn of the century how how did things change
0: um well so you have the sort of following the tammany hall model in new york the rise of the ward based political system and the the a political boss system, um, where, uh, the, these, pl- these political bosses and, and the, the local wards in Boston would hand out, um, essentially jobs in exchange for political support. And it's, it becomes extremely powerful and, and leads to the election of Boston's first two Irish mayors who are relatively conservative and, and, uh, palatable to the Yankee establishment, but it's really John Fitzgerald who becomes the first real sort of ethnic um, mayor of Boston um in the beginning of the of the 20th century um, James Michael Curley takes it to a whole nother level because while James Michael Curley comes out of the sort of Tammany Hall um uh you know local Ward system he changes it in that instead of the jobs being handed out at the Ward you know local political boss level the the patronage James Michael Curley um uh you know, solidifies through City Hall and through him. And so um, he really does away with the Ward-Boss system and solidifies power in, in City Hall. Uh, and um, James Michael Curley's really the most important and controversial figure in 20th century Boston history. Serves four terms as mayor. Um, he serves a term as governor, I think two terms as in the U.S. House of Representatives and two terms in the federal penitentiary uh, for different crimes. Uh, and uh, uh, he was absolutely loved by, in the ethnic neighborhoods of Boston, you know, particularly by the Irish, but uh, he had quite a bit of support in the Jewish community and the black community. Um, and uh, But he made decisions for the city based on uh, who gave him the biggest bribes. Uh, and he, he discouraged investment in the city and, and, you know, I write in the book in a lot of ways, he really destroyed Boston in the first half of the 20th century.
1: Yeah. That's, um, you know, what, why, why do you, do you think that he, he just, you know, what, what were some of the policies or, or actions that he took that that were so detrimental?
0: Well, when political, de- when decisions about investment in the city are based on kickbacks and bribes, um, capital flees. And so. Uh, it's not so much intentional policies that destroyed the city. It's that investment in Boston just stops in the first half of the 20th century. So for instance, in 1915, the custom house tower opens at 496 feet. Um, the next time, so that's 1915. The next time a building is built, that's taller than Boston is not, doesn't open until the Prudential center opens in 1964. So we have 50 years where no tall buildings were, were built in Boston, the, the old John Hancock tower opens, but it's it's a, a little bit shorter than the Custom House Tower. Um, but they're, the jobs and people uh, and um, uh, investment in the city all flee the city in the first half of the 19th century, in the 20th century, and continues um, with what's called the New Boston, with the election of John Hines in the period of, of urban renewal, which is basically just tearing down dense neighborhoods, diverse dense neighborhoods, and replacing them with Undiverse, low-density neighborhoods, um, and that through different types of policies, that continues into the second half of the twentieth century.
1: You know, a major story of of uh, America, American politics in the the twentieth century is the rise of the suburbs. Um, so, you know, what impact did the rise of the suburbs have on on Boston proper?
0: Well, so the rise of the suburbs is is a, a complicated phenomenon, and and I grew up in Newton and live in Needham, so. Uh, I enjoy living in a lower density area, but as a matter of public policy um uh you know it's it's high carbon consumption living um and the rise of the suburbs we think of as just people migrating to the suburbs but they're a product of of intentional decisions that are made some uh, some are good decisions such as uh, building of of trolley lines and and utilities uh, you know, Beyond the, the city itself. But a lot of them are intentional decisions to move people out of the city. Um, and so, you know, we see this in urban renewal. We see this in more subtle ways in terms of tax policy, such as uh, the home interest rate, you know, mortgage deduction, which subsidizes home ownership, but the, a similar tax break is not applied to people who rent. Uh, so you see, you know, a governmental policy, which is which encourages people to live in single-family homes outside the city instead of renting in the city. You see it in the way that schools are financed through property taxes, um, which means that um, suburban schools are are financed in a, in a way that the urban schools aren't able to compete with. So a whole series of policies, you know, conspire to move people out of the city, um, and then you know, as I mentioned, urban renewal literally takes down dense neighborhoods of Boston, creates low density. Uh, moves people out of the city. And then we built highways to, to move people out of the city. And we're still grappling with the effects today of, of, uh, very high housing prices and, uh,
1: transportation gridlock a lot to pick up there. And I think we'll, you know, we'll talk a little bit about some of the, you know, ways in which, uh, especially towards the end, you know, the ways in which Boston has been dealing with that, uh, so, you know, some of the problems that have been, uh, in the groundwork being laid in the, the 20th century. But, you know, I would love to take the time to talk a little bit about, you know, some of Boston's most famous residents, uh, you know, though he only spent a few years in Boston, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s time there was very formative. So, you know, what type of Boston would, would Dr. King have encountered and, uh, you know, how did the city shape him?
0: Um, he had an interesting relationship with New England. Uh, he when he was, I think, in high school in his first years of college or so, he comes up in the summers to work at um, tobacco farms in Connecticut, and it's the first time that he sees, um, you know, integrated churches, uh, you know, he, his first time of essentially being outside of the segregated South, and it opens his eyes, I think he writes later, just how important his, his summer spent in Connecticut, you know, seeing um, the benefits of, of desegregation. Um, after college, he comes up to Boston to uh, to get a PhD in theology at Boston University. Uh, he becomes a minister at the 12th Baptist Church in Boston, uh, and he gets introduced to a student at I think the Boston Conservatory, Coretta Scott. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King had you know had a deep connection with Boston. Um, in the 1960s, he he has a famous visit to Boston. Um, where he leads a civil rights march in Boston that attracts very large crowds um, and uh, he uh, reaches out to the Jewish community and gives a a speech at Temple Israel Um, and so he had a a deep connection to the city, a deep and important connection to the city of Boston. You know, at the same time um, he recognized that northern cities like Boston uh, had their own uh, segregation and own uh, race issues, and it was not limited to the American South. I think that was an important contribution. Um, you know, and it's only a decade later um, or, you know, a little bit later that,
1: you know, we're seeing race riots at Boston in the 1970s. John F. Kennedy, you know, he's probably the most famous Bostonian of all time. Uh, you know, what, what do you see as his legacy and impact on Boston and its people? So, you know, his father,
0: Joseph Kennedy, makes an enormous fortune He's the son of a like a saloon keeper in, in East Boston, marries Rose Fitzgerald, the the daughter of the, the former mayor. Um, but he's very successful um in a number of different businesses on on Wall Street in New York, um, in uh liquor bootlegging, um, in Hollywood as a movie mogul. Uh, and and Joe Kennedy becomes enormously uh wealthy and sees great political promise in his sons and his oldest son, Joseph Kennedy Jr. is sort of the one who he plans most great things for, but Joseph Kennedy dies. I like, over the English channel during world war two. Um, and when world world war two ends, his second oldest had become a hero in world war two with the, you know, the PT boat and, and really he did with that in the, in the Pacific. And so Joseph Kennedy wanted John F. Kennedy to, to to uh, you know, to become a politician, and he saw that the place where it would be to run for the House of Representatives um, from Boston. Uh, but there was a problem. James Michael Curley was in the House of Representatives uh, for the election, I think, in 1946. And um, but Curley had enormous debts. Curley could not uh, contain his spending, and so it's believed, although I'm not sure that there's there's hard evidence of it, uh, but Curley's debts suddenly get suddenly go away. And Curley announces that he's not going to run again for the House of Representatives. Instead, he's going to run for a fourth term as mayor of Boston. And it's believed that Joe Kennedy brokers a deal with Curley to pay off all of his debts if he'll run for mayor again and not run for House of Representatives. Um, So Curley runs for mayor again, wins, ends up going to prison for uh, tax fraud because he's not reporting all the bribes. Um, uh, And uh, John F. Kennedy runs for Congress. Um, Joe Kennedy and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy are tireless campaigners for him. Um, You know, wins in the House of Representatives, serves, I think, two terms, runs for the the U.S. Senate, Um, wins and then, of course, runs for president, um, becomes president. Uh, So he has great uh, national, international fame because he becomes president. And, um, you know, the fact that he was the first Catholic president of the United States. He was highly, um, uh, you know, very attractive man, um, sort of becomes first television celebrity, you know, with the Nixon debates. Um, But his impact on Boston itself, I think is is a little bit more modest. Uh, He he doesn't end up spending an enormous amount of time in Boston. Uh, Joseph Kennedy sort of relocated to to New York as the center of gravity. They have a, a family compound in Hyannis. Uh, which becomes sort of the campaign headquarters when he's running for president. Um so of the Kennedy family, I would say it's really more Ted Kennedy that has a much greater impact as a senator for so many decades and and the the legislation
1: that that he passes that ends up having a greater impact on, on Massachusetts and Boston. Yeah, it's it's just it's unbelievable the that family's impact. There really is, you know, maybe with the exception of the Bushes, no no fam- no American family quite like them, or I guess the Adams the, the Adams' family, but their are uh, they're reigned. Uh, I'm sure there's still Adams, uh, descendants in power somewhere. I'm sure, sh- I'm sure. Uh, well, there, was, there are still Adams in, in Boston. That's definitely the case. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's remarkable that, you know, the staying power, some of these political families, uh, you know, in, in recent decades, just to, to pick up on some of the economic threads that we've been talking about, you know, obviously covering a, you know, the 400. Uh, you know 400 year history of a city is so hard because there's so many elements uh to to pick up on so you know I really do encourage listeners you know if they want more uh details on these to go to go check out the book um, but in recent decades you know boston has experienced economic downturns revitalization you know what are some of the, the, the you you've, you've talked about it but but what are some of the the sources of d- decay and you know some of the causes of improvement that you find heartening
0: so, you know, I talked about the rise of the manufacturing industrial economy that starts with Francis Cabot Lowell in the 1810s and by the 1840s the New England economy becomes really manufacturing industrial focused. Um the end of World War I with the returning GIs triggers a very deep national deflationary recession. And the problem with deflation is that if you could buy something more uh, you know, less expensively a month from today, you're going to wait to to, for, to make purchasing decisions. And so it created this um, incredible problem for the manufacturers of New England uh, with suddenly their, with this great deflation. And the way they dealt with it was by closing down the mills of New England in the 1920s and moving the mills to the American South or overseas. And so in a matter of like 10 years in the 1920s, you you have a collapse of the industrial manufacturing economy of New England. You know, obviously manufacturing continues, but it, it's never as, as powerful. And unlike the 19th century when when with the collapse of the, you know, mercantile and maritime and, and agrarian economies replaced with industrial economy, we really don't replace uh industry and manufacturing in New England across most of the 20th century. And Boston in particular, but New England as a whole, goes into a, a great decline across the 20th century um, and so uh 19 uh 1950s moody's rates boston's bond rating at just above junk level as late as i think 1982 the brookings institute declares boston the most blighted big city in the entire country I mean, think about today the position boston boston's in and we're talking about you know 41 42 years ago it being the, the most blighted city in america it's you know it's been in, incredible progress um, in the 1980s, Harvard economist Ed Glazier, did a study that that showed that three quarters of all homes in Boston were worth less than the cost of construction. So, if you wanted to to build a new home in Boston and you put it on the market, the sales price would be lower than what you just spent to build it. Um, and so, it really takes to the 1990s when people start returning to the city and, and and sort of a re-embrace of urbanism and the benefits of the city. That you see the rise of the knowledge based economy. Um, and you know a lot of great advantages that Boston has by, you know, by these uh, knowledge-based companies and innovation economies having access to intellectual
1: capital in Boston. That you see the city really turn around in the
0: last thirty years.
1: Yeah, you know, Boston really is a a technology hub. Uh, you know, it's it's jam packed with with PhDs, scientists, lawyers. You know, I I'd be interested at you know if there's a comparison of Boston's you know the level of education in Boston compared to other cities, I imagine it would be ex- extraordinarily high. You know, it, it, is there a, a cause of this, uh, you know, the Boston being a technology hub beyond just the mere presence of Harvard and MIT?
0: It's something I explore a lot in the book. I mean, that's in a lot of ways, the whole purpose of the book is to try to figure out why Boston's doing so well today and why it didn't do well before. And, and do we have anything to worry about going forward? And there are some real signs for concern today with the high housing prices and transportation Problems and climate change, and you know other crises that we face today. Um, And you know, if you ask most people why Boston turned it around, why it was so successful over the last thirty years, the common answer is Eds and meds, you know, access to universities and and hospitals. Uh, But that answer never totally satisfied me because Harvard College was founded in 1636, and Mass General opened and was founded in 1811. So we've had you know, great universities and hospitals for a long time here, you know, so why now? Um, and it's a complicated answer. A lot of it is, I think, because of the embrace of urbanism and and people and, and jobs moving back into the city. Um, you know, there are other specific factors that have made um, the presence of schools and universities, uh, their impact on the economy greater today than they were in the past. You know, so little things such as um, uh, historically intellectual property Intellectual property created by professors at universities belong to the universities, but that rule was changed. I forget what year. And so now professors can own the intellectual property of their work. And so you had all these professors, you know, from MIT and Harvard and, and it's not just those schools, you know, Boston college, Boston universities, Tufts, I mean, you know, Wellesley college, Brandeis, there are, you know, dozens of great college universities in the area, you know, these professors and their students, um, uh, starting businesses. Um, and taking advantage of the intellectual capital. The other thing that happens is, um, you know, Massachusetts is actually, I believe, a net exporter of dollars to the federal government. In other words, the Massachusetts people and businesses pay more in taxes than they they receive in uh, services from the federal government. But the one place that that's where there is an enormous amount of investment by the federal government is um, in healthcare. Uh, Massachusetts has a a massively disproportionate share of federal healthcare investment. Um, and so it really helped drive the life science, uh, industry. And I think now 18 of the 20th, uh, 18 of the 20 largest, uh, life science companies in the world have a presence in, in greater Boston. Um, so, you know, the importance of, of biotechnology and life science companies to the, to the Massachusetts economy is really disproportionate. And part of the part of the explanation for that is federal investment.
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. And, and, you know, as you, as you point out there's you know, it's, it's not just MIT and Harvard, you know, I've heard people describe Boston as it's kind of like this massive college campus where there's students from so many different schools. And it really is a place that I think attracts smart people because there is just so much going on and there's so many great job opportunities um, you know, for, for, for kind of highly skilled, uh, work, you know, w- w- with your, with your study that you've done, you know, there's obviously so much that we weren't able to cover in just in this interview alone. Um, but you know, for you, you know, what does the history of Boston, you know, really, really tell us about the present, uh, and, and, you know, also the future of the city, you know, if, if let's say, uh, a Bostonian, you know, the mayor of Boston or politicians in Boston were to call you up, um, and you know, ask you for advice, you know, what can the history of Boston tell us about what we should consider, you know, in improving the city? Uh is there anything that really sticks out for you?
0: So the overall theme of my book is trying to figure out why Boston is swung between these periods of great success and great failure. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, we're in this period of incredible success for Boston, but with some real warning signs right now. And so I trying to try to parse what were the common practices and and policies that coincide with success and and coincide with failure. And my overall conclusion, obviously, it's not quite as linear as this, is that cities in general, and Boston in particular, succeed when they embrace what I call the three Ds, density, diversity, uh, and good urban design. And what that means is, is that you have to create those spaces, architecture, you know, places, uh, social infrastructure, you know, in, in ancient Greece, it was the Agora and Rome, it was the forum, you know, these places that bring people together and you need to bring lots of people together from diverse backgrounds. And by doing that, what social science teaches us and what history teaches us is that through that exchange of ideas with people with, with different experiences, that's where better decision-making is made and that's where innovation comes from. And so we have to continue to remember that. And through much of the 20th century, we, we forgot that we moved away from density, we, we battled against diversity and we tore down the, the good urban places that bring people together. And the city relearned those things over the last 30 years. Um, but there's lots of signs that we're forgetting those lessons today. And I think the the lesson, the overall lesson is we have to be very intentional about the success of the city. We can ta- we take it for granted that Boston is a very successful city, um, but it's, you know, when I grew up in Boston in the 1970s and 80s, so we're not talking about different lifetimes, we're talking about within our own lifetimes you know, as I mentioned, Boston was a basket case. And so, um, I don't think we're going to go back to the Boston of the 1970s and, and eighties, um, or, or earlier. Uh, but we have to be intentional about it if the city's going to be
1: gonna, going to continue to be successful. And I think
0: that applies to Boston. I think it applies to any city in the world.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I have much more, more, uh, familiarity with like the, you know, history of, of New York city or the history of Los Angeles, but you know, there, there's certainly so many parallels between the history of Boston and, and these cities as well, uh, you know the, the different ways, you know, similar causes of of decline and, and similar causes of of uh, of growth. You know, it, it's a it, it's really valuable. I think worthwhile to study uh, city and municipal uh, history. I think you know when people simply focus on national history, they they do sometimes neglect that uh, you know this kind of interpersonal you know, more, uh, local based interactions that really do help to explain like why development and progress can, can occur, uh, you know, uh, Dan, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the new books network. I, I, should just say like this book really is, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's worth looking at also just for the photography that's in it and the, and the images that you, that you pull it's, um, it, you know, there, there's a lot of visual components to this book. It really is, a you know, a book that could be used as a, as a textbook. So, you know, I really, it's impressive that that you were able to do this while well. also, you know, holding down a job, a uh, full-time job as an attorney, uh, it really is remarkable. Um, but yeah, I, I encourage people to go and check out History of Boston. Uh, thanks so much, Dan.
0: Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you, Caleb, for having me on. I
1: appreciate it. Of course.